Hey, Rachel, what are you so happy about? Miles, dude, we just hit the continuity milestone that I have been waiting 64 episodes to reach. The first major eccentric crossover? What? No, I'm talking about the official introduction of the greatest ex-antagonist of all time. The Marauders? I hardly think- No, no, not the Marauders, Mr. Sinister, man. Nathaniel Essex, the most glam of all glam supervillains. Oh yeah, he put the Marauders together, right? Well, indirectly, yeah, and he created the technology that created the Morlocks. Actually, come to think of it, if you throw in the Grey and Summers families, he's responsible for like 90% of the pieces in this story. Wait, Sinister created the Morlocks? I I thought they were just mutant refugees from all over the place. No, no, Sinister created the technology that created the Morlocks. Dark Beast created the Morlocks. Hank McCoy? The Hank McCoy from Age of Apocalypse. Okay. See... After the Age of Apocalypse imploded, Hank got tossed into 616, but into the past. Now, in Age of Apocalypse, he'd been working for Mr. Sinister, and he still had a lot of Sinister's tech, which he then used to continue his experiments, which in turn led to the creation of the Morlocks. So he's still working with Sinister? Oh, God, no. Sinister's incredibly possessive about his research. I mean, he's got a huge hate on for Dark Beast for stealing his work, which is part of why Sinister targeted the Morlocks in the Mutant Massacre. Wait, seriously? So you're saying that the most catastrophic mass murder of the X-Line was basically... An intellectual property dispute. What?! Rachel Edditon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 65th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So we are here, like we alluded to in the cold open, we are at the first big X event, that being the Mutant Massacre. Right. This is the first big eccentric crossover that we're going to have seen. I mean, this is kind of the one that started it all. Yes, and they will, of course, keep going forever and ever forever, for better and worse. Some of the X events I love, other ones, eh, not so much. This one, however, I think is both very strong and structurally kind of weird. So let's talk a little bit about this. You know, what the Mutant Massacre came out of, both narratively and editorially, because this is unprecedented in the X line, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, this is the first time we've had enough X-Books to really do one of these. I mean, I'm sure New Mutants and X-Men could have crossed over, but really, aside from the issue by issue, oh, look, it's those characters again, they hadn't really done so. Well, they have crossed over a little bit, especially in the annuals, or at least the annuals for the last couple years of both titles have been two-part stories with, you know, one half in New Mutants and one half in Uncanny X-Men. And they've, you know, passed through each other now and again otherwise. But this is the first time we've really seen a big coordinated crossover. And it's not just X-Books either. You've got Thor, we've got Power Pack, we've got, I think, a very, very brief Daredevil cameo. We do, although we won't be covering that one because it's unrelated enough to not be worthwhile. Yeah, that's more of a tie-in. Yeah. Now, The Mutant Massacre actually covers 11 issues of various titles. And so because of that, we're going to be splitting this into two episodes. So this is going to be The Mutant Massacre Part 1, where we focus on the X-Men and the New Mutants and what's going on with them. Okay, so let's focus in on those teams for now. Uncanny X-Men lineup right now is Storm, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Rogue, and Shadowcat. Yeah, we did have Rachel Summers as the Phoenix on the team for quite a while, but she's gone for complicated stabbed by Wolverine and Spiral reasons. And she won't be back to Excalibur. We've also got Psylocke hanging out at the school, but she's not officially one of the X-Men yet. Yeah, she showed up in the annuals of this year, uh, having come over from Marvel UK and Captain Britain. She's now a permanent resident at the Xavier Institute. Now, this is a pretty dark era. This is the X-Men really living the fighting to protect a world that hates and fears them idea, you know, that came at the start of the comic. And honestly, at this point, I would question whether they even qualify as a superhero team based on the way they operate. Yeah, it almost seems like they're maybe, I don't know, soldiers or a guerrilla band or a group of uh, of revolutionaries even. I was thinking, I mean, they're, they're kind of more of a loose collective. 
they're so busy dealing with things as they come up and they've got so much stuff going on on their own as well that what they're doing, I mean, it feels like a band-aid effort. Like they are racing to keep up without a lot of internal cohesion and without especially the guiding philosophical force of Xavier or the hardcore left brain organizational skills of Cyclops. So they're kind of foundering. Like they don't have a cohesive superhero identity, but I do feel like they kind of have a cohesive cultural identity that they maybe haven't before. Yeah, I would completely agree. And we're going to see a little bit of exploration of that, in fact, in this storyline. Exploration? Yes. Now, on the New Mutant side of things, same team members we've had for a long time, the Core Nine. That's Mirage, Cannonball, Wolfsbane, Sunspot, Karma, Magma, Magic, Cypher, and Warlock. Right. And right now, Magneto is in charge of the Xavier Institute. Xavier is off in space with Lalandra, his space girlfriend. And Magneto is trying his best with, you know, varying degrees of effectiveness. Let's see, we've got Mirage, Daniel Moonstar. She is also an Asgardian Valkyrie, which means that she has a bunch of death-related powers in addition to her usual psionic and illusion skills. And that'll definitely be relevant in this storyline. Now, other stuff that's happened recently, we mentioned the Psylocke thing. Uh, Cypher was actually the main person that helped rescue Psylocke from the complicated stuff that was going on in those annuals. He's very much in love with her despite being substantially younger than her. Now, I do want to put in a uh, shout out to the people on our message boards. Yes, you're all right. Psylocke is much older than uh, Cypher. I was wrong. I, I told you it. so. <laughs> you did indeed. So we'll just, you know, never speak of that again. I don't know. I mean, I think we'll speak of it as it's story relevant. Well, yes, that. My um, smug grin can be taken as red. <laughs> and we see the New Mutants in the same way that the X-Men are really not getting their shit together. The New Mutants kind of are, conversely. They're coming out of having been killed and resurrected by the Beyonder. And it's really only at this point that they kind of have their heads together again and have the team together again as a team. So that's the narrative context. These are the characters who are going in and where those teams are, or at least where those two teams are. We'll again be talking more about X-Factor next episode. Let's look at the publishing context, because this is, again, an unprecedented thing. This is a big, big cross-line crossover spanning months and months. And this was originally intended just to be a story in Uncanny X-Men, wasn't it? Yeah, Claremont had already had the story in mind. And in fact, early on, he was thinking it would be Nimrod that would kill all the Morlocks, not the Marauders, as we'll see. And when he was talking to Louise Simonson about it, who was now writing X-Factor and had been editing the X-Line a while back as well, she said, you know, I feel like the story would take forever if you did it in just one book. What if we have it take place in all the X-Books? And at this point, her husband, Walter Simonson, was writing and drawing Thor, which ended up involved and tied in directly as well. Simonson's other title, Power Pack, did too. You know, it's funny to me that this was originally just supposed to be an uncanny story, because if I have to tie it to a single title in my head, I always tie it to X-Factor. Like, I think of it as an X-Factor story, and I think it's because X-Factor is the book where we'll see the longest lasting repercussions specifically of the mutant massacre. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, the X-Men have some heavy consequences as well, but that really just feels like part of the constant shifting of the line in terms of team members and premise. With X-Factor, the whole book just turns on its side after this crossover. And again, we're going to get to more of that next episode. So this was apparently a logistical nightmare. There's a quote from Claremont that Miles dug up about coordinating across all of the related stories. Quote, it was horrible. I don't know why we're thinking of doing this again. But in fact, do it again they would, and again, and again, and again. The Mutant Massacre was really successful financially. A ton of people bought it, and so Marvel was like, well, hell, that's basically printing free money. Claremont, Simonson, keep doing this sort of thing. You have to. And so they did. All right, so you mentioned that the original plan was for Nimrod to carry out the massacre. He did not, and instead what we got was a weird conglomeration of other supervillains. Some new, many that we'd seen before. So the villains are the Marauders, and they're a group of, uh, I believe, entirely mutants who are going around and doing terrible things. The two we'd seen before specifically are Sabretooth, who you may not know is actually not an X-Men villain to begin with. 
He showed up in Iron Fist number 14 back in 1977 with no stated link to Wolverine at the time. Huh. Do you know when they started trying to tie their backstories together? Uh, I think basically now. I mean, it's this story where Psylocke looks into Wolverine's memory and sees that they've tangled before. And then we also have Vertigo. Now, she first appeared in Marvel Fanfare number one back in 82 in a Savage Land story as one of the mutates. Now she's on the Marauders. How she got there? Eh, we don't really know. So I want to take a minute to discuss how this changes the dynamics of the story, because Nimrod is a mutant hunting sentinel. He's a super sentinel from the future. The Marauders are all mutants. Right. And I mean, once we find out more about Mr. Sinister, that kind of fits because he's really not concerned with politics or identity or anything like that. He's just concerned with his plans. So well, that, I would say it. that he's very concerned with identity, just, you know, not necessarily anyone else's. Well, OK, yes, that's true. Sinister is a system. Um, but yeah, it's really weird to see these mutants who even more than the Hellfire Club, the sort of previous example of this philosophy, just do not give a shit about mutant loyalty or sticking together or anything like that. They have a job to do. They get to be terrible people in order to do it, which they really enjoy because they're terrible people. And so that's really as complicated as it gets for them. So, you know, the other thing this does is it seeds Apocalypse into the story in, again, ways that I think make him work much better as a supervillain than he did in his last appearance in X-Factor, but are very much building up to a big X-Factor story. Like the big stories that come out of Mutant Massacre that we see starting here, they're all X-Factor. Yeah, absolutely. I guess you could link the formation of Excalibur to this, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Well, the formation of Excalibur is coming from a bunch of different directions. True, true. So anyway, I vote we dive into the Uncanny X-Men side of the Mutant Massacre. Okay, so we are starting with Uncanny X-Men 210. This is a story called The Morning After, and it's a transitional one. It's a lot of glimpses at a lot of characters dealing with the aftermath of that big Hellfire Club fight that Miles mentioned, the one where Rachel Summers' Phoenix left the team. And so we see focus on various characters, and we'll just go through this pretty much briefly, because while these are interesting bits, they don't directly tie into the Mutant Massacre, which is what we're focusing on. Right. I feel like there are a couple major, major takeaway points from this thematically that I do want to come back to. And the first one of those is the rising anti-mutant sentiment we're seeing, and specifically the rising anti-mutant sentiment tied to X-Factor. Yeah, we see Rogue going around looking for Phoenix, and some stuff happens with her that ultimately results in her hearing a lot about this new group X-Factor that she hasn't heard about before. You know, this group of mutant hunters who a lot of anti-mutant humans are using basically as justification for their bigotry and even violence. Reflecting the X-Factor thing, I mean, another motif that we're going to see honestly throughout this crossover is desperate times calling for desperate measures. So, for example, also in this issue, Magneto is invited to join the Hellfire Club as their white king. This is, again, a direct consequence of that fight in the park where the X-Men and the Hellfire Club first squared off and then teamed up together against Nimrod. And Magneto is seeing this as maybe a way to keep his students safe that he hasn't before because the Hellfire Club, I mean, they are basically chaotic evil. They act in self-interest. And if he can be part of that self-interest, then it affords the kids under his protection an extra, you know, layer of safety. Yeah, although I think I would call them neutral evil, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone has their opinion on that. Listeners, what do you think? Alignments for no, all the I mean, I think, I think I think you're right, neutral evil. It's been a long week, y'all. <laughs> yes. But yeah, one thing I really like about that scene is that Magneto is, you know, wearing a suit, looking vaguely normal, heading to the Hellfire Club, and as he does, he looks over and realizes he's passing by X-Factor. Now, he has not heard of who X-Factor is at this point, specifically who makes up the team. So when he sees the original five X-Men, or in his eyes, four of them and Madeline Pryor, because he has no idea that Jean's back, it's a big shock to him. And it's also a big shock to them and confirmation that, oh, so Magneto, we thought he was a bad dude leading the X-Men and that's why we're not associating with him. Well, I guess he must really be if he's going to the Hellfire Club. Right, man. So much of the X-Men X-Factor near misses in this play like a farce. 
That's something I think we alluded to briefly, but it's worth mentioning about the Mutant Massacre. It's that there's these two big sides to it, the X-Men side and the X-Factor side, and they don't overlap at all. The same stuff is going on, but aside from a stray optic blast or seeing the other characters across a crowded street, like these are two distinct storylines going on in the same Morlock tunnels, which is weird. Well, this is the failure at communication era. Like that is the defining thing that keeps those titles separate. Right. I'm just going to say I'm glad they didn't stick with that for too long, because that would have worn out its welcome very quickly. Well, they eventually worked out a fairly sound narrative reason for it, or at least they will about a year from now once the X-Men are in Australia. But we are going to get to that much, much, much later. For now, Uncanny 210, there's also a brief side story that I like, and that I think we should probably come back to in a later episode in more detail, involving Ilyana kitty and peter going and looking for kurt who's been lost after the fight in central park and he was injured in that and involves notably the first instance of kitty pride talking down an anti-mutant mob without using any allegories to racial slurs Yay, Kitty, you're growing up. We're so proud of you. Go, Kitty. Yeah, and that's actually kind of an important one because Kurt's going to come out of this. You know, he got severely injured by Nimrod and was teleported to parts unknown, and he's going to come out of this angry mob experience with his teleportation powers really screwed up, and that's going to hit him hard during one of the fights in the Mutant Massacre later on. We'll get to that. At the same time... God, there's a lot going on in this issue. There really is. At the same time, Wolverine and Storm are at the theater kind of rehashing the events of the previous few days. You know, Wolverine's attempt to straight up kill Phoenix and both of their uncertainty and going forward in the wake of that. But there are two other things that happen in this issue. You know, this is all build up. This is all context. There are two things that tie into the mutant massacre. Now, I'm not going through these chronologically because I wanted to save the two things that tie directly to the mutant massacre for last. And those are Dazzler and Tommy. Yeah. So Dazzler, Alison Blair, has been in Lila Cheney's band, and she's been sort of in hiding. She hasn't really been public as Alison Blair because there was so much anti-mutant hysteria specifically against her. And she's feeling bitter about this and looks in the mirror at one point, and there's this other her, this sort of happy-go-lucky but also kind of soulless version of her saying, hey, you should take back what belongs to you. And she leaves the mirror wearing a choker that she didn't have when she first looked into it. It's not commented on at this time. It's not gone into in any degree of depth. But this is Dazzler in the early stages of possession by Malice, who is a disembodied entity who is worming its way into Dazzler's mind. And it's not connected to any of the other events, but we're going to learn much, much later that Malice's possession of Dazzler is also part of the coordinated efforts of the Mutant Massacre. Yes. If Sinister is good at one thing, it's planning. Planning a terrible thing, specifically. Man, Sinister is really good at really weird coordination. He is. Now, the other story, the really important one, is the one that frames the issue, and that is the story of a young mutant named Tommy who is on the run from a group of killers. Her boyfriend is actually is a Hellfire Club guard randomly, and he is killed early on in L.A., and she continues to flee this group all the way back to New York, where she seeks refuge in the Morlock Tunnels, which is apparently where she came from, only to learn that they've tracked her back there and used her as a means to getting to the Morlocks, because the group who's following her are the Marauders. Yeah. Now, later on, we'll hear about a retcon involving Gambit and how the Marauders found the Morlocks. We're going to talk more about that next episode. So from there, things get ugly. Real ugly. Right. The title of X-Men 211 is Massacre, and this is where it starts for real. Yeah, and I mean, in fact, it opens with the Marauders, who we haven't really seen directly so far, just slaughtering a bunch of Morlocks who are all, like, hanging out, having dinner. This is our first glimpse of the Marauders. And it's such a jarring first glimpse of them, because the title page of this issue, the first page, is the Marauders just mugging, and one of them saying, Hi there, I'm Scalp Hunter. We're the Marauders. We kill mutants. Who's next? 
And it's it's this very almost Silver Age cartoonish introduction to a group of people who literally spend the rest of the crossover murdering functionally defenseless children. Yeah, and in fact, that is what they do immediately. We see them just killing a whole bunch of Morlocks who are at dinner, and it's super disturbing and gross. Despite the sort of cartoony elements you mentioned, Rachel, for me, I was immediately in there. Like, my disbelief was suspended, and I just got this look of, like, disgust that went over my face more and more with every page, and that continues for the entire crossover. And one of the things that I think is most effective about this crossover is that the majority of the actual massacre takes place before any of the super teams get involved. Yeah, by the time they show up, it's basically just bodies and bodies and bodies and a few survivors, the protection of whom then becomes the goal of the teams. So while the Marauders are slaughtering their way through the tunnels, what's going on with the X-Men? So they're basically hanging out at the mansion. They're, you know, recovering in various ways. Nightcrawler's still really beaten up from the Nimrod fight and the angry mob. Wolverine's in bad shape from a fight with Lady Deathstrike and like 12 other things. Wolverine's physical form is a truly beaten up thing at all times in this era. And they're about to go drinking when all of a sudden this gigantic purple Morlock bursts through the lawn of the Xavier Mansion, essentially saying everybody is dying down there, help, before dying himself. And Psylocke is there. Psylocke is a telepath, and she's able to get an image out of this Morlock's mind of the massacre of what's going on. And the X-Men rush down to the tunnels, only to find that they're pretty much too late. They arrive to piles of corpses. And before they even have a chance to get their bearings, the Marauders attack them. Now, we've seen the X-Men fight so many supervillains at this point, and they've had some really rough battles, but I don't think they've ever gotten as beaten up as they have in this fight. Right away, we see Nightcrawler snuck up on by Riptide, one of the Marauders who can sort of turn into a whirlwind and shoot blades everywhere. And Nightcrawler almost gets killed. He just gets stabbed and pierced and shredded severely by Riptide. What's weird, too, is that this is described in detail in the text, but there's no visible blood in any of the art, which is something you see a lot in this event, actually. A lot of, you know, captions and a lot of discussion about, you know, is there so much blood I can hardly see him? And it's like, well, there's also no red in this panel. Yeah, which is, is strange. I agree. I want to go back to something you just said, which is that we've never seen the X-Men just demolished like this in a fight. And I think there's a really simple reason for that, which is that for the most part, they're not fighting enemies whose entire goal is to kill them. They're fighting enemies who are trying to kill them as part of a job or as part of a larger gimmick or who are opposing them. But the Marauders are really only in the tunnels for one purpose, and that is to kill as many mutants as possible. They have no larger goal. They have no concerns. Like, this is what they are here to do. And they certainly have a good start as Nightcrawler is almost dead. Ilyana shows up and teleports Nightcrawler and some of the wounded Morlocks away. She asks Storm whether she should bring the new mutants, and Storm says, no, it is not safe for them down here. I can't even think about what would happen if we were to lose them. It's just going to be us. We'll take it. Storm has yet to figure out that the best way to guarantee the new mutants' involvement in a storyline is to say that it's too dangerous for them. That's very true and unfortunate. So the Marauders just keep doing what they're doing, even after parting ways with the X-Men after that fight, killing person after person after person. We see Scalp Hunter just shoot Annalee, one of the sort of kindly old woman Morlocks, and a bunch of her children. And we should say, the X-Men, really the good guys, don't really win fights in this storyline. The best they get is a tangential victory or brief survival or, you know, making some small difference. This isn't a superhero fight in any ways that I would define a superhero fight beyond code names and powers. Absolutely. It's just ugly. It's brutal and it's violent and it's not really appealing. And what they're trying to do is kind of futile. I mean, the bulk of the damage that will be done has been done by the time they get there. Like, there's just this hopeless desperation to this entire storyline. 
So the X-Men, you know, they keep going through the sewers, they keep running into the Marauders and seeing more and more death. And in fact, the next time that they fight, you know, we saw Nightcrawler almost die. We see Kitty dive in front of Rogue to uh, block one of Harpoon's harpoons. There's some kind of energy harpoon. Um, I think Slay Spears. Wow. I, again, I want to go to the Slay Slay disambiguation like we were talking about with Slaymaster. I like that his name is Harpoon, but he calls his harpoon-shaped weapons something else. I think it's one of those things where if you keep saying the same word over and over, it stops sounding like a word. And I think he eventually got to that point. Oh, my God. So Kitty phases Rogue out of the way, but there are these energy things that passes through her and she gets stuck in an intangible state where she's going to stay for a long time. Yeah. Similarly, Colossus gets severely injured fighting some of the other marauders. Yeah, Colossus is really heavily damaged and Colossus actually at this point crosses a line that we've seen him cross only once before he grabs Riptide and snaps his neck. Yeah, he just kills him. Now, he's done this previously with Proteus, but Peter Rasputin is one of the more pacifistic X-Men, so to see him do this, seeing him just snap Riptide's neck, which of course he can easily do with how strong he is, is horrifying. It's horrifying to the reader, and it's also horrifying to Storm as a leader of the X-Men, who starts to wonder, what am I bringing this team to? Well, and the leader of the Morlocks. Remember, Storm is still in charge of these guys. She won that in a fight with Callisto ages ago. And she is technically responsible for all of these people who have been slaughtered. I will say, though, Colossus's move for me feels like a very, very natural climax of an escalation that we've been seeing across a pretty long time in X-Men. I mean, we're coming out of annuals where they seriously threaten to kill someone. Like, they give Spiral a do this or we will kill you ultimatum. In fact, Storm specifically does. We're coming out of a story arc, the defining incident of which is Wolverine genuinely trying to kill one of his own teammates. And again, I think this is part of why I don't really think of the X-Men as a superhero team at this point, because they have sort of stepped outside of what is usually the very strict and specific kind of final threshold that defines those groups. Yeah, and we'll actually see some discussion specifically of that shortly with uh, Wolverine. But for now, um, the X-Men and the Marauders disengage once again, the X-Men having suffered a number of losses, the Marauders having, you know, suffered the loss of Riptide spinal integrity. And the X-Men really have no choice but to retreat at this point. They've been so severely injured, they know they're in no shape to confront the Marauders, and so Storm makes an executive call. She sends the rest of the X-Men home. They're going to take, you know, the surviving Morlocks. And she tells Wolverine, I want you to stay behind here in these tunnels. We know nothing of the Marauders. I require a prisoner for interrogation. No problem. What about the rest? One prisoner is sufficient. The remaining Marauders are yours. And one of the things that makes this crossover just so unpleasant in a really effective way to read is me as the reader, I felt good about this. I felt bloodthirsty toward the Marauders after what they had done, and that made me feel kind of weird about myself. And I think that's exactly what it's supposed to do. It's an examination of violence and when it's worth it, and specifically how one feels about violence and what that means. Yeah, it's all about desperate measures, and it's all about what you do in a fight that you've already lost. So from here, we go over to New Mutants number 46, which is actually the title's only involvement in the Mutant Massacre. It's not one of the primary titles, but it begins with the New Mutants waking up in the middle of the night to find that Lockheed is missing. There's a hole burned in an elevator shaft. Something is very much not right. And as the characters investigate, uh, Danielle Moonstar decides to head outside to check on Brightwind. And you know how we mentioned that she's a Valkyrie and can see specters of death over people who are about to die? There is... One of the most spectacular, maybe the most spectacular we've ever seen, crouched and hovering over the entire X-Mansion. Yeah, it's like this hundred foot tall, just skeletal, robed, vaguely humanoid, antlered something. It's almost like a mix of all these different visions of death just sort of crammed together, basically representing the hundreds of Morlocks who have been killed or will be killed. 
And while the New Mutants aren't technically involved in the Mutant Massacre yet, one of them actually is, and that is Magic. Yeah, and she's decided that they need a physician, they need a scientist, they need some help, and she heads to Scotland to get Moira McTaggart. Well, specifically, she was she was there with or called by the X-Men to help evacuate some of the wounded during their first clash, or right after their first clash with the Marauders, and one of the things she realizes is they've really only got a school nurse at the academy, they've got Sharon Friedlander, they need a bigger boat for this one, so she pops over to Scotland to get the only doctor the X-Men know. Upon teleporting back, we've seen Magic's powers get a little weird before, where she accidentally teleports through time as well as space. So this happens, and she has to wait a little while in limbo with Moira, waiting for her original self to leave so her current self can go back to Westchester. I should add, she specifically grabs Moira out of the shower. So they use the time in limbo to, you know, get Moira dressed in what clothing Ilyana can uh, conjure up in limbo, which, as it turns out, is limited to things with spikes of a minimum of three inches. Yes, a couple of skulls, some heels, you know, evil stuff, like you do. It's awesome, man. They head back, and things are just bad. Immediately, they set up a field hospital because the X-Men are returning with a bunch of severely injured and, in many cases, dying Morlocks, probably a couple dozen of them or a few dozen, who are all just losing blood, losing life. It's carnage. It's out of nowhere for the characters. And if you're just following New Mutants at the time, if you hadn't been reading X-Men, it would be out of nowhere for you, too. I should note that this is carnage with a lowercase c. Yes, yes, not the Spider-Man villain, he's different entirely. I mentioned earlier that a major theme in this whole crossover is helplessness, and I think there's nowhere that that's as crystallized as with the New Mutants, who often, you know, find themselves in the position of really wanting to do something, you know, being faced with events that are really a lot bigger than they are prepared to deal with or handle. And here, I mean, they're just at the house with limited ability to help and just seeing bodies being brought in. Moira is trying to triage, but there are more corpses than survivors, even of the Morlocks they initially brought back alive. Yeah. And as New Mutants often does, it cuts to various characters and how they're reacting. And my favorite is actually Sam Cannonball, who thinks to himself, it ain't enough. We're losing more than we save. Like when I was a kid back home in Kentucky and a mine shaft collapsed, whole town pitched in. But for all our efforts, all our prayers, none of the trapped men came home alive. Never saw my daddy so sad. Never felt so helpless myself, except years later, watching him pass away. Now, we've seen already that the Mutant Massacre is a coordinated effort, and it occurs to the New Mutants that one of them has a family who's not there at the mansion she's responsible for, and that is that is Shan, that's Karma. She has she has younger siblings, um, and she lives with them in, in an apartment in town, and she has not been able to get a hold of them. Yeah. And so as the new mutants kind of process what they're feeling, she says, hey, I need to go take care of this. Ilyana says, I'm with you. Let's go. And they teleport over there. Just in time for the apartment to blow up. Right. Now, we'll find out years later, this actually is not a marauder attack. It has to do with Viper and Spiral. For now, that's not really relevant. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's really played as part of the massacre here. Well, at the time, it was intended to be. It's just, you know, retcons. You know how it goes. Oh, yeah. And so when those two characters don't return, the rest of the New Mutants, feeling like they can't really do much at the X-Mansion, like everything that can be done is already being done, vote and decide, okay, we need to go find them. Now, two of them dissent on this, and those are Doug and Warlock. Warlock has been trying to track down some anomalous readings he's been picking up, and he's getting more and more and more and more freaked out, and Doug is insisting that this is relevant and they should be paying attention to this, and everyone else shouts them down because they have not yet learned that you fucking listen to Doug Ramsey when he has misgivings because he is always right. Yes. And so Warlock turns into a car to get them through the sewers more quickly. Aww. And as they speed by, we see in the sewers who's been waiting and watching, that being Warlock's father, Magus. Is that seriously how it's pronounced? Uh, yes, according to the internet, that is in fact how you say it. We've been saying it wrong this whole time. That sounds so wrong to me. Eh, well, you know. I object. 
So they go through the tunnels. Warlock increasingly freaked out because something is following them that no one else really you know, picks up on. And honestly, they don't really even need that to be freaked out because again, they're going through this just destruction and death. They're stumbling on corpses everywhere. Yeah. And so by the time they emerge, they are not in good shape, understandably. But thankfully, people who are in better shape than we would have expected are karma and magic. They made it out of the apartment in time. Yeah. And they drop in just in time for Warlock to lose it completely. Yeah. He senses that whatever this thing is, it's gotten close. So he spears the new mutants, including Karma and Magic, back into the sewers and then turns into a tank in order to fight whatever this thing is and almost immediately realizes, wait, there's no hope and just does that thing Warlock does where he kind of melts into a puddle with a couple of eyeballs sticking out just in utter despair. Probability of success, resistance mode, non-existent, terror, termination, hope loss, self-loss, despair, why go on, cannot go on? And yeah, Magus just attacks them at that point, and he is as terrifying as he ever was, possibly even more so. He's taking up the entire panel with the New Mutants just being thrown about in front of his giant face. It kind of reminds me of the way the Demon Bear used to be drawn, just as scenery more than character. Yeah, I mean, that's always been a feature of Magus, I think, you know, along with his amazing techno-organic beard. He's huge. He exists on a sense of scale that is so much larger than the spaces and the characters who we're used to seeing. I mean, he swallows scenery. He swallows characters. He swallows background. He becomes the defining characteristic of any scene he's in visually and, of course, narratively. And the New Mutants, realizing they have no hope of defeating Magus at this point, teleport away. They flee. And that's the end of the New Mutants tie-in. I wouldn't call it an essential chapter of the X-Men side of the Mutant Massacre, but I do say it really adds just to the sense of horror and helplessness and loss of all of the wounded dead Morlocks being brought in. Which brings us very smoothly to Uncanny X-Men 212, The Last Run. Now, last we left our heroes, Wolverine was the only X-Man left in the Morlock tunnels, and he had been given the mandate by Storm to find a marauder to question and license to kill the rest. Yeah, the captions actually describe him, and again, we talked about how there was going to be a bit of an examination of violence and the X-Men's handling of it in this issue. We definitely see that from the start. The caption says, violence is in his nature, murder is not, which sums it up. Yeah, Uncanny X-Men 212, for me, is the heart of the X-Men half of the Mutant Massacre. This is where it comes to a head thematically, and this is where I feel like we get the lasting and resonant consequences played out, you know, in panel. Meanwhile, back at the mansion, Maura McTaggart and Sharon Friedlander are doing their best, but they are losing Morlocks left and right. And it's not just the Morlocks that are in trouble. I mean, Nightcrawler is straight up comatose at this point. Kitty is in this permanent ghost state, and we find out that she's actually continuing to discorporate. Her molecules are getting further and further apart. She's getting more and more transparent, and she's eventually going to just disappear. Storm, meanwhile, is forced to confront the fact that as a leader, she has basically just lost both of her communities. She is the leader of the X-Men right now. She is also, remember, the leader of the Morlocks. And her team is scattered. Its members are critically injured. The community for whose safety she is ultimately responsible has just been nearly wiped out. And neither of those are things she could stop, and probably neither of them are things she could have stopped. She is powerless in more senses than, you know, just the loss of her elemental abilities, which again, remember, Storm doesn't have any powers right now. She is doing all of this basically as a very skilled but functionally baseline human. And this is when she kind of hits her breaking point. She freaks out. She runs away from the X-Mansion. She dives off a cliff into a lake, swims across, ditches her clothing, and runs off naked into the woods. 
Which, you know, given the events of the previous issues, I would say is not an entirely irrational response. And Colossus, who's always been close to Storm, decides to go after her. But as he starts to, he realizes he's not okay. He sees Psylocke in the hall and just collapses. He just falls on her and he's been in his metal form this entire time and damn near crushes her. Now, Colossus is still in his metal form and he has taken a lot of hits in the fight, enough that if he reverts to flesh, he's probably going to bleed out. Unfortunately, there's no way that Mora can treat him when he's metal, but there is someone on hand who might be able to, and that is Magneto. And I love this scene because we've seen Magneto's reformation over the course of the last many, many issues, but we've never really gotten to see him be just gentle, precise, compassionate with his powers in the way that he is here. He says he thinks he can rearrange Colossus's molecules to basically fix him, to repair the damage, and slowly he does, and it's this wonderful light in the darkness of the storyline. And you know, it's worth looking at the captions here, looking at kind of the other side of this. He has taken life so often, brought harm so easily it became almost second nature. Now he has a chance to heal. He will die himself before he fails. And I mentioned, you know, that I sort of see this as the climax and sort of the of, of a lot of the X-Men arc of the Mutant Massacre. And this is a theme we're going to come back to, the idea of pulling out something constructive, the idea of, of, of being able to walk away from a fight and look not only at where you can have the most effect, but where you can do the most good. Absolutely. But unfortunately, again with the theme of helplessness, Magneto is convinced he did it right, and Colossus is now fully paralyzed. He is alive, though. Yes, yes, Magneto so, did save his life. you know, there's that, and no one's quite sure what happened other than that something went wrong. Right. Speaking of that same thing, Wolverine is still down in the tunnels. And this is another one of those near misses with X-Factor, because remember, Wolverine, in addition to the healing factor, he's got super senses, and he smells someone who he should not be able to find because she's dead, right? That being Jean Grey. He'd smelled the other original four X-Men before, now he smells Jean, and before he has a chance to process it, he gets jumped by a character he'll be seeing a lot of in the next decades, Sabretooth. Now, have we seen Sabretooth in connection to the massacre before? I think this is actually his first appearance relative to it. We didn't see him with the other Marauders. Yeah, I believe it is. And actually, to the point where I think when I first read this, I didn't realize that he was working with the Marauders. I thought he was just like, hey, killing spree, my kind of Saturday. <laughs> um, because, you know, Sabretooth. But he is actually there, and he is specifically at this point gone after and is dragging around one of our very favorite Morlocks, and that is their ridiculous wizard healer. Yes, yes, Healer is a sewer wizard. He dresses like a wizard. He talks like a wizard. I assume he is a wizard, even though his powers are more like a cleric's powers. And Sabretooth does two things here. The first is to obviously engage Wolverine. And the second is to give us our first hint at the story behind the massacre and our first drop of a name that is going to get very familiar very fast. Mr. Sinister's deal in a game that don't allow for wild cards like the Morlocks, or you ex-chumps either. So we sent the Marauders to resolve the situation. Man, I am so excited that Mr. Sinister is officially in continuity from this point, because we complain about the convolution of the X-Line, but to be fair, it's what pays our rent, and it's also something we really, really enjoy. And Mr. Sinister kind of raises that to a whole new level. I mean, to me, he kind of comes across as the avatar of generations of editors and writers who are coming in and saying, nice little universe you've got here. Here's a retcon for you, and a retcon for you, and a retcon for you. Retcons for everyone! <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Like, 
Sinister interacts with the Marvel Universe on like a Doctor Doom level of granular manipulation. And it's really fun because he's got tendrils through everything. And this is where it all starts. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, we're still just in this fight with Wolverine and Sabretooth. They tangle for a while, and it's very clear that they're pretty evenly matched, although it seems like Sabretooth has the edge just a little bit in every single way. Until Wolverine makes a decision. And that is that while he could keep fighting here, if he does that, Healer's gonna die, and he won't be able to bring Healer back to the Morlocks and the X-Men to help them. So he just smashes one of the walls, which collapses a tunnel onto Sabretooth, and gets out of there. And, you know, I think we should read Wolverine's dialogue here because it's such a good crystallization, I think, of where he's come from and where he's landed. You were right, Sabretooth. You're the killer. I'm a man who sometimes kills. That is such a critical distinction. And it's such a critical definition of Wolverine. And it's such a critical self-definition of Wolverine. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen examples of that with the whole thing with Wolverine and Rachel Summers. We've seen a lot of examples of that with his evolution in the Wolverine miniseries in Japan. Well, and I think most recently and most vividly, we've seen an example of that in his fight with Lady Deathstrike. Right, where he won't kill her at the end, where he doesn't finish her off, I agree. Yeah, the decision not to kill is almost always the defining moment for Wolverine. Now, he heads on back, and we still have one X-Man out there, and that is Storm, who's still out there in the rain, kind of freaking out. She is, however, no longer running around naked. I think she's stolen a dress off a clothesline, and Callisto finds her and gives her the best come-to-Jesus speech that I've ever read. In fact, let's just go through that. Storm, at this point, just wants to get away. Let me pass. Callisto, let me go. I have done enough, suffered enough. Not hardly. Please, let someone else lead the X-Men. You feel that way. Why'd you take the job in the first place? I thought I was needed. Who knows, perhaps I still am, as a gravedigger. Poor baby. You figure you're the only one who's had it rough? Guess again, Windrider. Open your eyes. We've all been hurt, and things will probably get a whole lot worse before it's over. Life for the Morlocks and the X-Men both will never be the same, but no way will I abandon the ones who are left. I can give no more, Callisto. I have nothing left. They're my people, like the X-Men are yours. They put their trust in us. That makes us obliged to be true to them in return, no matter what. I have no right to lead the X-Men. You have no right not to. You punk out if you rabbit. What's that say to Colossus and Nightcrawler and Shadowcat? The ones who died and the ones still hanging on. If the X-Men, if the Dream, they and Xavier's school and body aren't worth fighting for, why the blazes did they shed their blood? That's a debt that can't be welched on. Why do you care about them? About me? I thought you would be happy to see me fall and take my place. Me too. Life's chock full of surprises. Don't fret, though. We're still rivals, and someday to take back leadership of the Morlocks, I may well kill you. But I've also come to respect you, Aurora, and I mean to see you worthy of that respect and of yourself. I love that relationship between Storm and Callisto. The fact that whenever Storm falters, whenever she's weak, Callisto is like, no, no, no. If you were the one who beat me back in those tunnels back in the day, I am not letting you not live up to that. You know, over the years of the X-Men and in the Marvel Universe in general, there have been a lot of iconic leaders. You know, we talk about Professor Xavier, we talk about Captain America, we talk about Cyclops, we talk about different eras, different iterations. For me, the definitive leader of the Marvel Universe, the person who encapsulates what that does and should stand for, is and I think always has been Callisto. Callisto, interesting. You've kind of got a point. Like, yes, she's a much more minor character. She's often been perceived as a villain. But those qualities, they're always a part of who she is. Always. She believes so strongly 
in the responsibility of leadership, in the idea that power is something that you live up to, that it's not mandate, it's not divine right, that Storm may have won leadership of the Morlocks in combat, but she earns it through her subsequent actions. And that's a process that never stops. Callisto's sense of responsibility toward her people, and that's something we see again, you know, in her most recent appearance in the Storm series, is unflagging in ways that I think very, very few other characters are. I mean, I cannot think of another character whose personal shit does not continually get in the way of their ability to lead teams. And for Callisto, that is always secondary. Absolutely. And so as they head back and as Wolverine heads back with the barely still alive healer in his arms, there's a flash of heat and light that the X-Men barely got out of the way from and the tunnels are scoured clean by something. By some kind of fire or energy. Now, we'll find out what that is next episode. It is um, actually a byproduct of one of the other players in this crossover, and that is the mighty Thor. For now, all we know is that there's nothing left alive. Yeah. So the last issue of the Mutant Massacre for X-Men, number 213, it's sort of an aftermath issue. The Mutant Massacre itself is pretty much over in that the Marauders, well, they won. They've killed almost all the Morlocks. We haven't talked much about creative teams this episode, and I want to touch on that briefly because every single Mutant Massacre issue of X-Men is drawn by a different art team. Yeah, that's true. We don't have Romita on every issue as we have up until this point. Yeah, I think Romita is just on one issue, and then we've got Leonardi. And for this issue, we've got Alan Davis. Yeah, now we've seen Alan Davis most recently in that pair of X-Men and New Mutants annuals from this year, where he got to draw Psylocke a lot, and in fact, this issue is called Psylocke. Yeah, and man, we've talked about definitive artists for individual characters, the way, for example, you've mentioned that Colossus, when you picture him, is drawn by Paul Smith, and that's what Colossus looks like. You know, for me, Sienkiewicz and Warlock. For instance, Alan Davis's Psylocke is my Psylocke, or at least Psylocke 1.0. Yeah, and to clarify, this is Psylocke before she swapped bodies with a ninja assassin named Quanon, so she still looks like a very white British woman, albeit one with purple hair. This issue opens with her kind of telepathically going through the whole Xavier Institute, checking in with the infirmary that's near the entrance to the Morlock tunnels, with the comatose Nightcrawler, with the paralyzed Colossus, with the incorporeal Shadowcat getting a feel for all of these characters that she's just starting to get to know and who are now going through hell. Well, and it's the first time we see her specific telepathic form. I mean, we've seen her sort of manifest telepathically as just sort of a translucent herself. But when she's in Cerebro, when she's just flitting around, what she appears as is basically a pair of eyes with a flare around them. And that is fascinating to me. Yeah, now we'll see that sort of butterfly flare a whole lot. But given that her eyes are unbeknownst to most of the characters, windows into the Mojo-verse given to her by Mojo and Spiral, that's kind of a cool decision. Psylocke is specifically supposed to be guarding the X-Mansion at this point, right? Yeah, just sort of keeping a telepathic eye out or, you know, robot eyes as the case may be. She at one point is surprised by an actual intruder, and the psychic feedback kind of blows her away from Cerebro. We pretty quickly see who that is, and that is Sabretooth. He's come out of the tunnels seeking to just do harm to the X-Men, and he thinks he's found easy prey in Betsy Braddock. Well, first he takes down Rogue, which is impressive to begin with, because she is at this point the X-Men's heavy hitter. Oh yeah, totally. But again, remember, the Mutant Massacre is a coordinated effort. The Morlocks are its primary targets, but it's going after other mutants as well, and Sabretooth is now here to try to pick off the X-Men who aren't currently in the tunnels. The only ones at home who aren't in the infirmary, who aren't completely incapacitated, are Rogue and Psylocke, who's not even officially on the team. Yeah, and so he comes after her, and she is tough as nails from the start. 
She runs, yes, but taunting Sabretooth all the way, and it quickly becomes evident that she's trying to lure him away from the infirmary, giving Moira McTaggart and Nurse Sharon Friedlander a chance to seal it off, which, realizing what she's doing, they do. And it's worth noting, too, that Betsy at this point has been injured. You remember Colossus fell on her in an earlier issue, and one of the things I appreciate about this era is that things like that actually have consequences. So she's running around with cracked ribs because an enormous man made out of metal fell on her. And that doesn't stop her from doing things like throwing a heavy barbell at Sabretooth. It doesn't work because he's Sabretooth and he's ridiculously strong. But still, seeing her with this much fire in her, seeing her fight back despite the fact that she's the only X-Man left in the mansion, despite the fact that she's severely injured, it's damn impressive. I think it's significant that this is Sabretooth because Sabretooth is definitively the most dangerous of the Marauders and honestly, one of the most physically dangerous of the X-Men's villains. None of these guys can go toe-to-toe with him. Wolverine can sometimes because he's got a healing factor, but that's really about it. Like, Psylocke is good at what she does. She has been a superhero for a while, but there is absolutely no question of whether she can win this fight. Right. So she keeps fighting back, nonetheless, ends up on the roof, ends up continuing to run, continuing to fight, and eventually Storm and Wolverine show up to give her a hand. They're still trying to figure out what's going on with the massacre. They don't really know the details. I mean, Sabretooth has clued Wolverine in on a little bit of it, but the X-Men don't have a lot of data to go on. And Psylocke comes up with a plan to get some more. Again, she is a telepath, but it's really hard for her to get into Sabretooth's mind. She's not super trained, and he's got very strong defenses but he's distracted while he's fighting. Especially while he's fighting Wolverine, who he hates a whole lot. And so Psylocke says, all right, well, if we can keep this fight going, I'll get in his head. Storm points out that that could kill Wolverine, that Sabretooth is more than a match for him, especially in Wolverine's current state. And Psylocke says, do we want the information or don't we? And that's exactly what happens. Wolverine gets more and more beaten up by Sabretooth, just continuing this fight, prolonging it so that Betsy can telepathically get into Sabretooth's mind. Eventually, she gets enough information. Wolverine throws Sabretooth off a cliff, who drags him with him. And after being saved by Rogue, the conflict is over. Sabretooth is gone, and Wolverine is damn impressed with Betsy. He'd previously sort of written her off as just this, you know, high-class, hoity-toity, useless person. But now he says, essentially, hey, if she wants a place on the team, I say we give it to her. I think I mentioned this in context of the annuals we recently discussed, but I don't think characters ever look as genuinely happy as when they are being drawn as happy by Alan Davis. Yeah, there's this sort of like, welcome to the team, everybody's putting their arms around Betsy, and it's a really nice, sweet ray of light after this horribly depressing, negatively consequential storyline. Oh man, now I just want a montage of those moments, because I have so clearly in my head a mental image of the corresponding moment from the Excalibur graphic novel. Oh yeah? Where the team first gets together, and there are a bunch of them, and again, you of those great Alan Davis grins. They're like the warm, fuzzy antidote to wholesale slaughter. So that is the Uncanny X-Men side of the Mutant Massacre. After this, we have most of the Morlocks dead. We have Colossus paralyzed, Nightcrawler comatose, Shadowcat gradually disappearing, and a new member of the X-Men, that being Psylocke. That's sort of our ray of hope at the end. We'll be coming back to the Mutant Massacre next week, looking at the other half of the crossover, X-Factor, Thor, and Power Pack. For now, though, you've got questions. Mighty Evil Doom asks on Twitter, Do you feel that the late 80s crossover starting with Mutant Massacre directly led to the culture of crossover bloat that would become a hallmark of the X-Universe, or is it just a symptom of how the comics industry business model evolved? 
Um, I think the Mutant Massacre was absolutely the start of that, yeah. I mean, we know the Mutant Massacre was the start of that. We've got documentation that it was the success of the Mutant Massacre that led to the mandate that there needed to be annual crossovers. Yeah, and those annual crossovers, sometimes more memorable like Inferno or Executioner's Song or whatever, sometimes less like Operation Zero Tolerance, they would actually continue, depending on how you count, until 2001 with the Eve of Destruction storyline. And, you know... I don't think it was always a bad thing. I mean, some of these storylines work really well. They reshaped the X-Men universe, they kept the characters on their toes, they shook the line up. Other times, though, it did feel like they were just being phoned in. I think it's important here to make a distinction between the X crossovers and the larger Marvel crossover events. We're not talking about, you know, the big summer events, the Civil War, Secret Wars, Avengers versus X-Men. These are generally the events specifically centered around the X-Men line. Right, exactly. Although, honestly, I think you could look at the crossovers and events that the rest of the Marvel universe did and probably try them back here as well. This was when Marvel first learned, if you cross books over with each other, more people will buy those. They'll think they're more consequential, and they might pick up the other books that they're not buying that are also involved. Centipede Damascus asks on Tumblr, Who are some X characters that are not appearing in already announced all-new, all-different Marvel books you'd like to see in the next wave of announcements? Personally, I hope Jubilee, Monet, and Rachel Gray show up somewhere. It's also been too long since we've seen Danny Moonstar and Nate Gray show up anywhere. I will answer this the same way I answer it every damn time, which is Frenzy. I want Joanna Cargill, central in the X-Line. I miss her. She is one of my favorites, and I don't think anyone's doing anything with her right now, and I don't think anyone has for a while, and it's a shame because she's great. I also really want Edie to come back as a major player, which also brings me to one of my pet books I would like to see eventually. I really want a Quentin Quire solo series. That would be great. I specifically want a Quentin Quire, like, on Fonterry's solo series in the rough vein of Cy Spurrier's legacy, like something that sort of rips through the weird margins of the Marvel Universe, something that's centered around a character whose relationship to the superhero-supervillain binary is a lot more complicated than we usually get. That would be kind of awesome. I'd really like to see the Xavier Institute kids, you know, the ones that Cyclops and Emma were training, so Tempest, Gold Balls, all of them. I'd like to see them come back. The way they ended up at the end of Uncanny X-Men, like pre-Uncanny X-Men number 600, I'm just itching to see what happens next with them. And there was actually some discussion of this in the comments on our blog, and I agree with a couple of our listeners that the line could really use a young characters book that was not all new X-Men, one yeah, that's really absolutely. more about like the students specifically. And we don't have anything like that yet. Of the three team books, uh, none of them are that. That said, I would also love to see Havoc taking a more active role, since we know that older Cyclops is missing in the new Marvel Universe. And I gotta say, a world without Domino is a sad world indeed, so I'd love to see her come back. You know what I'd like to see? Huh? I would like to see older Cyclops, if if and when he's folded back in, if he ends up back on an X team, I would like him to end up on whatever team is the closest analog to X-Force. You know, I could totally see that. That would be a logical evolution for the character. I would also like to see Hank McCoy go full supervillain for a while, because he's been teetering on that line. And I think teetering over that line a lot. And I would really like to see him just throw up his hands, say, fuck ethics, shit needs to get done, go on a tear, and then have to deal with the consequences. That would be fascinating, totally. Okay, so we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and one of the things our listeners get if they contribute at a certain level is thanks on the air in a variety of voices. So I want to turn this over to the angry Claremontian narrator. As the fate of On the Square comics hangs in the balance, only one question lingers in the mind of the woman called Alicia. After all she's done, will this final effort be enough? Or is it, once again, too little, too late? I believe Sabretooth gets the mic next. Haven't seen that punk Wolverine in a while, and now I find him hanging out with useless frails and kids and talking crap about honor. That punk's gone weak, and Ray McDaniel and Nick Flurry and me are gonna show him just how much. Gonna make him suffer. 
right after we figure out our backstory. Huh. This could take a while. We can retcon it in later, if Sinister's involved especially, but meanwhile, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is as always recorded in Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, which I swear we'll be starting up again soon, and much, much more. Our podcast, like we said, is totally listener-supported and ad-free and is made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become one of those fine folks, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we will be back looking at the other half of the Mutant Massacre. As the Power Pack and Thor help out X-Factor, and Angel has a terrible, terrible day. Terrible day.